off the ball. It's not okay for him to be fine in a test match like that. It's a fulcrum position where everything runs through nine and ten. You don't get to be fine in in matches like that where you start. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Brian O'Driscoll on off the ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Now it is time for us to look back on the weekend where Ross Burns steered Ireland to a victory against Australia by 13 points to 10. That was a joint record equaling 12th successive win on home soil. An interesting weekend across the board. England looked well beaten against the All Blacks but a huge performance from them in the last 20 minutes at Twickenham rescuing a draw against New Zealand. France have ended the year unbeaten. They look at the moment still strong favourites to win the World Cup next year while Georgia humbled Wales in Cardiff and the Ireland flanker Josh van der Fleer joined a very exclusive club of Irish players along with Keith Woods and Johnny Sexton by being named the World Player of the Year. Delighted to say I'm joined now by the former Ireland captain Brian O'Driscoll. Brian, how are you getting on? Really good, Will, and you? I'm good. We might start with Josh van der Fleer before we break into the games themselves. Um, what an achievement from him. If you consider end of the Six Nations of 2021, it looked like Will Connors had perhaps supplanted him as the first choice number seven for Ireland. Then he has the disappointment of not being picked for the Lions tour, puts in a huge performance against Japan at home when he was left at home for that summer. And since then, he hasn't looked back. He's been a key player for Ireland and Leinster over the last 18 months or so. You've just stolen all of my research I've done in the last 15 minutes. Um, like I actually look back to the Six Nations in 2021 and obviously he played the first couple of games and then Will Connors came in for his first cap and played in the fourth game and then Josh came back in. I don't know whether that was down to an injury with Will Connors or or through selection. But if you think about that, that's the end of March 2021. So it's 18 months ago. Like it's it's pretty phenomenal where he has gone from the player he was then to world player of the year. And all you can do is tip your cap to him. He went and spoke to the coaching staff, asked them what he needed to do, what he needed to improve on. Um, there was talk about better ball carrying, you know, greater work rate. And do you know what? He has delivered on every area. Um, take away the try scoring because sometimes he's in the right place at the right time at the back of those malls. Um, I think sometimes hookers and sevens get the credit for for those scores when all the hard graft is done, you know, before they cross, cross the, the, the whitewash. But... It's his overall game. It's everything. It's he's he's just had so many big moments. Um, this you know huge tackle count, you know loads of carries. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but the effectiveness of his carries. I think what it is, it's a lesson to any rugby player in the world because at the start of of, of his career, in you know without um. Undo, without doing him a disservice, would you have thought that Josh van der Vleer was ever going to be World Player of the Year? Not from what I saw back in those days, but the way he's improved, the way he's come on, the consistency of performance, um, to come from where he was from a talent point of view and add the graft and hard work and expertise that has gone into all of those performances and pulled the whole lot together for a year of phenomenally consistent performances, I think it's an amazing thing and something that every young player should look to aspire to being because your talent and your ability will get you so far. But so much of that is down to hard graft, into into work behind the scenes, into, you know, the actual one one percenters here or there, nutrition, um, extras after training, um, analysis, all that um, supplementation, all of that stuff thrown into the melting pot. 
it culminates in a player you know winning the world uh, um, world player of the year and you could not be happier for him on top of it all he's one of the nicest guy you'll, guys you'll meet well i think it's all the more impressive as well he achieves this at 28 29 years of age too it's not like we're talking about a very young flanker at the start of his journey he goes has conversations with Stuart Lancaster Dennis Leamy Robin McBride about how he can carry the ball better he said he he was talking to Monaco at the weekend said he did loads of video analysis about other players he actually was looking at Caelan Doris as an example with the type of lines that he runs and the way that he carries the ball to be able to make that kind of transformation to your game at what should really be in a very advanced period of your career I think is all the more impressive yeah, but he's probably at the peak of his powers, if in all honesty, you know. I, I think that that depends on what air, air miles you have at that age profile in your career. Um, but usually in around 27, 28 should be the peak of your physical powers. You've got enough experience under your belt to understand right from wrong, where you've made your mistakes in the past, how you can improve, and yet you haven't begun to fall over the other side of, of the cliff yet on from a physical and injury uh, profile point of view. So it, it is the perfect moment for him to deliver maximum performance, but that's just one factor. You talked about all of the work that he taught in the individuals and, and the analysis that he went away and talking, you know, I'm sure he spoke to Caelan about his ball carrying and then trying to find his own way within that because Doris is Doris. You're never going to be able to copy him to the same degree, but stealing aspects of players' profiles is what it's all about. Um, I, I would have in the past done that from a captaincy point of view, looked when I didn't know ultimately how really to captain a team. I would have taken traits of different captains from school, Keith Wood, Martin Johnson, Deanna Quinnigan, aspects that really resonated with me. And I would have put them together into my style. Um, and similarly, as a player, you would have taken, you know, the footwork or handling of certain individuals, watched them ad nauseum as to how they did it. And then, you know, you put that together to, to create your own style of play. And, and I, I don't know, it's, there, there aren't enough words to laud how impressed I am um, with what he's managed to do in, in a short space of time. To turn around, you know, uncertainty as to whether he was going to make Ireland's 23 um you know in the coming years to being world player of the year and i think it's you know, as much i said last year that antoine dupont was a, a was a clear winning uh, world player of the year i think josh van der Fleer for me was a real standout um you know the others you know that were nominated obviously dupont was six nations player of the year is consistently very good i'm unfortunate that he didn't play this november i think that really hurt him if he'd had big performances who knows and and Johnny has been has been outstanding, you know, word, word, worthy noting, you know, the oldest ever um, nominee for World Player of the Year by by three years, I think. So, but for for me, Josh really was the standout performer, and that's not just the Irishness in me. Because sorry, the other thing is, well, I, I thought it was ridiculous that Ardy Sevilla wasn't nominated in that four or five. Like I thought, in an All Black team that has not been good, I thought he had been outstanding over the course of every performance I saw him play in. So, but yet. Josh, it didn't feel as though it was necessarily a photo finish. I I was very, very confident that he was going to win it. Yeah, this might seem like an obvious point, but I would think the competition within the back row has possibly helped to improve him too. Because if you look at it, before Will Connors got injured, he was, as I said at the outset, the first choice number seven. He gets injured before the England game. Josh van der Fleer gets back in, hasn't looked back since. Other than the Fiji game where he was rested, he's pretty much played every minute for Ireland and some crucial games like um, all bar eight minutes in New Zealand uh, during the summer. That competition has probably helped to push him on to a large extent here too. 
Of course it has. Um, and the misfortune of, of certain people, um, Dan Levy obviously springs to mind as well, who had that huge year in 2018, was was destined for greatness in the seven jersey for Ireland. Um, you know, probably had gazumped um, Josh, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's gone for an extended period of time. Will has had multiple issues. But you have to remember as well, Scott Penny's in there, um, Max Deegan. All these guys are really good every time they pull on a Leinster jersey and when they've been given their, their opportunity internationally, they haven't disappointed. So I definitely feel as though the um, the competition for places has elevated the performance to another level. And and it's something, I, I think the most impressive part of all this is that as he was improving, he was never, com- he was never happy with it. You, you should never you know, feel as though your job is done. And I think it's constant honing, constant... Uh, evolving of a game and and trying to improve and like I said it's the one and two percenters of the difference when you get up to that very high threshold Van der Fleer was saying in Monaco at the weekend that when he was in school he could reel off every winner of the World Player of the Year and said it was a huge dream of his to become World Player of the Year at some point he's now fulfilled that is that one of the regrets from your career Brian that you never actually picked up this award? Uh, Yeah I, I think it is I think there's not much where you look over the course of um, of your playing career and you think, uh, you know, individual awards, individual accolades, that you know, yeah, I really wanted that one, or you know, I, I um, that was one that that I really sought out to get. But I'd be lying if I said that um, that World Player of the Year passing me by was, yeah, it was a disappointment for sure, and one that I I look back that. Um, you know, the select the selection panel at the time. Oh nine was probably my mm. year. Um, <clears throat> Rich McCall ended up winning it. Um, trying to think what his name. Uh, South African number nine World Cup winner. Um, to come to me in a second himself, myself, and I kind of thought it actually might be between the two of us and not not as much Richie. Um, and then. It wasn't to be, but you know, Richie McCall is Richie McCall. He's he's won it three times. He's he's arguably one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player of all time. So, if you're going to lose out to someone, you might as well lose out to a great. But it, it definitely was one that stung, and it took a shine off what was a great year. I remember coming in after the South African um, game, and and we'd won, having you know, I think we went the year unbeaten with Ireland. Um, Obviously, the disappointment of the Lions, but they were phenomenal games. Um, and I just remember it, it was it was done differently back in those days. It was kind of announced right after the the November series, and um, and I, I had heard that it, that you know Richie had won it, and, and it, it definitely took the wind out of my sails a small bit because it was one that I would love to have been one for the grandkids more than anything, or your own kids to be able to say once in my career that I was considered to be the best player in the world. Yeah, Fory Dupree, I think, was the Springboks. Fory Dupree, so of course it, yeah. it was, yeah. Mm. And and listen, the thing about World Player of the Year is you'll always have people saying, what an outrage that Josh van der Fleer, he can't do this, he can't do that. And, and invariably, it'll be people from South Africa or people from New Zealand. And likewise, if Josh hadn't won this one, you know, we couldn't have possibly seen beyond him where how could Luthanio um, or you know, Antoine Dupont manage this year? Dupont, brilliant last year, but oh, we were much better. So you're always going to have that. It's subjective. Um, but I guess 
the important the subjectivity of of the uh, panel is is all important and um I, I i was part of it for a good few years um and it, it, i took it very seriously because i realized the importance of it to uh to to an individual having missed out on it and i wanted to make sure that it wasn't flippantly decided upon. Not, I'm not saying that it was previously, but mm. I'm, I wanted to make sure that um, that there was a lot of conversing throughout the year. That we had, you know, a couple of catch-up calls, and that we made sure that um, as the season progressed, we had earmarked certain individuals for being in um, the conversation at the business end of the season. I stepped away from it um, last year. Um, but I think they got it right in uh, in my absence this time around, for sure. Yeah, because I think in 2009, I think the reason that many of us thought you were going to win that year was almost to mark Ireland's achievement with the slam. And because it wasn't a World Cup year, it seemed that that was going to be a large part of the selection process. It's interesting you thought about it, because here in the media, sometimes we live these debates, and we had them a couple of weeks ago. Mm, Sexton getting in in the shortlist, and uh, Van der Fleer has had such a good year. It looks like there's a very good chance of him winning. We're wondering if we're a bit too Irish-centric. But it is interesting you actually thought about it that year. Yeah, I did. Yeah, well, once I was nominated, once you're nominated for anything, like the the funny thing is, I uh, in 2008 I sat down with Michael Check and I was in terrible personal form. I was you know, a lot going on in my private life, um, and I just couldn't get out of this rut. And then I sat down with sports psychologist and and, and more so with Checker, and I kind of goal set. I made some some goals for the following season, and one of them was to be nominated as World Player of the Year. And look back and maybe I kicked myself and not saying I wanted to be, world, not, not, not be nominated, but mm. actually be World Player of the Year. I managed to achieve my goal for the year, but it was one rung too low. <laughs> so, um, but it was, I was nominated for World Player of the Year three times over the course of, of my career. Um, once I had, a, I had a good chance in 2001 when Keith Wood won it. I thought I had a very good year that year. I thought the second time, I can't even remember what year it was, but I thought it was a bit of a token. Um, find myself in the nomination. I, I probably didn't feel I deserved it. And then in 2009, I thought I did deserve to be nominated as well. So it is something that as an individual, it's prestigious. You know, it's it's our Ballon d'Or. It's, it's, it's built an even greater head of speed in in more recent years as well because of the acclaim that it gets because of the um thought process that goes um into it and the, and the announcement at the world rugby awards and so on so there's there is a greater prestige to it and not just for the men for the women for the sevens players for coach of the year all of these are big awards um, for for breakthrough player of the year so capuso win that you know that they're they're big moments in people's lives because it gives you the confidence to elevate elevate yourself to future successes and realize you know what I'm I'm doing a lot right um and um and so yeah I think it is the the one one individual award over the course of my career that I would really have loved to have won yeah Terry Kendi as well winning sevens player of the year brilliant Richie deserved phenomenal like. I followed I followed the sevens a lot. Obviously, I'm uh, you know with the with the with the HSBC circuit and um, like consistently. I, I listened to all the commentators as well, and they know the depth of knowledge for them across right across the board is exceptional. But every single event I went to, they were like, "Oh, what about Kennedy? What about Kennedy?" They were just they were enthused by um, his kind of significant performances and obviously Jordan Conroy gets a lot of kudos because of what he scores but 
Terry's engine ability to create, score himself, um, you know, the bit of dog in him as well. Like he, he is, he's your complete sevens player. And yeah, we, we probably are, you know, don't associate ourselves really with sevens that much and it doesn't get that much airtime. But on the world stage for us to be able to deliver the world's best men's player and the best sevens player in one season is, is an exceptional outcome. Yeah, well, especially when you consider it's so recently that the Sevens programme has been revived. To finish third in the world this season at the World Cup, to have got to Olympic Games last year, albeit delayed by a year for Tokyo, and to have so many weapons on the pitch that they have right now. And you see how some of the players have gone into the Sevens programme and then kind of maybe 180 back into the 15s, like Balakun and Hugo Keenan at the moment. It seems to be a very, very worthwhile um, system for Irish rugby right now. Yeah, I think it really is. And there's just there's two lines of thought. I, I spoke to a coach um, a, a while ago that I'd be quite friendly with, and I, I won't do him a disservice by naming him, but he, he actually thought it was detrimental to the development of some players um, going in and, um, and, and playing at sevens level because they get taken out of the environment. You know, it's a very different game. Yes, they might be able to work on some, you know, some of their basic skills, work on their engine and so on. But actually, it works in a negative capacity towards them. That was one line of thinking. On the other side, you're looking at Hugo, Will Connors, Balaku, and these guys that are breaking through into 15s environment for their um, for their provinces um, and then subsequently for the national team as well. So it obviously does serve a purpose. You look at the All Blacks in the past, it's less so these days where it was the, the obvious pathway into becoming an All Black. Everyone went through it. Jonah, Christian Cullen, Jeff Wilson, Bowden Barrett, Israel Dagg, all of these guys came through sevens. And so we were kind of scratching our heads thinking, are we missing a trick? And in fairness to Dave's new Sephora, new Sephora he got this 100% right. Even if, you, if, even if you only get one player that comes through, but what you are doing is is creating an additional platform for players to get exposure, get an ability to go out and play on the biggest stage, get to work on some of those basic skills, as, as I mentioned, um, if they aren't going to be getting game time back back in Ireland. Um, that is men and women as well. If you look at the quality of our women's sevens team, um, it's probably been ahead of our men for, for a couple of seasons, but now our men are catching up on, on them and they've been very competitive. Again, not quite one a series event yet, but right in the mix in semi-finals and finals. And it's, it's only a matter of time before we do have some success there from, from, from both men and women. Yeah, fantastic for both Terry and Josh of the weekend in Monaco. Rugby here and off the ball is with thanks to Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. We're going to take a short break. We'll take a look back at the weekend's matches when we come back. Brian O'Driscoll on Off The Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us Welcome back to Tuesday's Off The Ball Brian O'Driscoll is still here with us we're taking a look at Ireland 13 Australia 10 at the Aviva Stadium at the weekend um, Brian the significance would be this is now by hook or by crook 12 home wins in a row it equals the run from 2018 I'm not sure if that's a uh, scary prospect for Irish supporters to be at this point once again a year out from the World Cup or if it's uh, something to celebrate particularly two hard-fought victories both against Australia and against South Africa. Um, the game at the weekend it was scrappy, Australia had a lot of the ball, Ireland perhaps didn't play their best rugby but yet found a way to win. 
yeah, that's a good summation of it. I think it's the of of the two scenarios that you suggested. I think it's definitely the better of the two that we're back um, in a confident place, having learned what we learned four years ago. I think I said it on the show before that the the the, the biggest change from thinking that we were the finished article. I'm not saying the lads thought they were the finished article four years ago, but they thought they probably got a little bit happy with how they were doing things. I think the greatest message that's coming out of camp is this constant evolution, this need for change to always modify and change and, and, uh, and continue to grow their game that if we're playing this game in a year's time, it won't be enough. And, and they're right too. And the only thing is about this game, uh, the style that they're playing is it's, it's so heads up that it's it's reactive to the individuals pulling the passes and so it's very hard for defenses to be able to predict what's going to unfold so from from where we are four years on and be a lot more comfortable that there's a greater evolution of this game plan than there is of of the last one um and then at the same time it's brilliant to be able to scrap out and find a way when you're not at your best against you know a, a very very impressive um australian team you know i i, I don't sorry a very impressive uh, on Saturday, for where they are at the moment, I think they're a bit hit and miss. But I thought they had a very, very strong performance against us. Held on to it for a long period. A couple of really good individual performances from them, even though they were, you know, they rode um, a few injuries that obviously could have been um, critical to them. Um, so yeah, it was um, for the most part a, a very, very pleasing performance. Almost the ideal performance to come out off the back of. Um, of a November because you leave room, plenty of room for improvement, but you're still somehow getting the job done. Yeah, I kind of got the impression from Andy Farrell after the game, it, this was a bit of a series where they had to roll with the punches, particularly in the South Africa and in the Australia game. And in this case, none more so than Johnny Sexton losing him 20-odd minutes before kickoff to the point that you basically have Crowley in Sexton's jersey and Ross Byrne is coming on in Crowley's jersey. That's how late the change was actually made. And yet you're putting in a player who's not got that many starts even for his province, but starting against one of the best teams in the world in Australia at home at the Aviva. That's probably all week preparing everything with Sexton and then having to put in a relatively rookie out half just within an hour of the game. What's to say that won't happen come a year's time, you know? Like, we've got to be mindful that if, you know, if we are to get to a final, it's five huge games, very physical games in a row um, for Johnny. And you know, irrespective of age profiles and all of that. Um, you know, I, I don't think we can expect him to be available for all five of them. I just don't think we can. Uh, and we sh- and we shouldn't think, we shouldn't rely on that fact. So I think this was a brilliant thing to happen for us to be to have to react to circumstances that were taken out of our control. They might have known that jo- there was a chance Johnny was going to miss. Obviously, didn't know too well if he, if Crowley was wearing his jersey. Um, but all the more challenging for someone like Ross Byrne coming in, having not necessarily had a chance to run through anything over the course of the week. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think it probably served us really well. I think we do look like a different team. There's a broken record. We look like a different team with anyone other than Johnny. But it's brilliant that someone like Crowley is going to get game time. He, he looks as though... He's a really nice footballer, and when he gets time at it, and he gets uh, a proper run at things, you know, probably post World Cup, he, I think, he'll be a really nice fit in the Irish jersey, and, and he'll grow, no doubt, in a very quick um, space of time. But 
to be given an early test match against quality opposition like that with Joey out, with him thrown in the deep end, I think will serve us really well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's great that you can still find a way to grind it out when you're not at your best, when indiscipline kind of rule the game, where um, just a lack of a little bit of lack of accuracy compared to some of the other performances we've, we've seen in the last year. But yes, still find a way to conjure up a penalty that needed kicking, and then you know you you defend for your lives. I think that that's exactly the attitude that we need to build on top of all the finesse, all the grunt work, all the great work that's done been done previously in you know, in New Zealand and the Six Nations, even against France. I thought there were brilliant aspects to take away from that game. So. Um, I think this is just an, an additional string to our bow, but an additional aspect to where we know that you know we don't always have to be firing at ninety percent to be at, you know to win games against good opposition. That sometimes eighty will get us done if we make good decisions and, and keep error count low. Can you explain why Ireland looks so different without Sexton on the pitch? Like we look back to very good performance in Paris with Joey Carberry at number 10. But generally when Sexton's not been around, Ireland don't seem to have the same type of control on the game. Is that down to how used these players are to playing with Sexton in that position? Is that down to his leadership? What's the reason that Ireland looks so different when Sexton's not on the pitch? It's both. I I, I think he sees it better than everyone else. I think he's... He... Bit dramatic to say, you know, he's he's a photographic memory where he's able to look and 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 he's he's able to take pictures of what he sees and compute the numbers that they've got more likely to attack left or right or to set something up and then watch whether there's a fold or an overfold or an underfold and then react accordingly. He also knows everybody's role and he's dictating plays, telling everyone where he wants them to be, what's going to happen next, and there's a huge comfort that comes from that because. You know, he's been consistently a brilliant player for over a decade. Um, and when you know, th- there's there's a comfort that comes with seeing certain players on team sheets. And when you're captain and one of your best players, m- your mo- most important player is there. I think everyone feels as though they can deliver their best, that they don't have to make that extra effort, that he's there to control things and to dictate play and they can just be themselves. Um, whereas someone else comes into that environment that hasn't been given... You know that isn't captain that hasn't got the reputation that hasn't had the game time to be to allow themselves to get into that comfort space. It's going to be more challenging, and there's going to be a a negative knock-on effect, for want of another phrase, um, to other players' performance because there's just there's an element more uncertainty. There's um, positionally, people just aren't sure what's happening next. Whereas Johnny's might be calling, he's calling two rooks to be able to set up a third phase. That's what's actually happening. Whereas I don't think the other lads are doing that. Um, and then on top of it, you've got someone that's able to commit players at the very last second. I do think Jack Crowley has a capability of getting to that space, of taking it really flat, and he was holding passes. He probably just needs to run a fraction straighter, if I'm honest. But if he, but the signs of what I saw at the weekend are very, very positive from his perspective. And to remember, Johnny's been doing this, doing that, this sort of game plan for four or five seasons with Leinster. Jack Crowley's just come back into the Munster team, which has gone through um, different coaching regimes and another change this year. They're still still trying to find their identity as to how they're going to play. So that that is going to take time from his perspective but the more time he spends in Ireland camp the more he watches Johnny the more video he takes uh, he, he takes heed of the better he will be over uh, in the long term 
Munster, in a way, have got a good problem now in that they've got Joey Carberry, Ben Healy and Jack Curley available. But how do they spread the minutes out now? And I wonder, can Andy Farrell have an influence and have a chat with Graham Rowntree and say, hey, maybe continue the experiment of playing Joey Carberry back at 15 and I'd like to see Crowley or Healy at 10. Um, it's not a bad situation to be in that they've got three potential first choice out halves here, but what way should they go? Yeah, well, you see, like, was it Crowley played 15 against Leinster in a, in a game where where they were beaten well, except on the scoreboard? Uh, I thought he had a really strong performance. I think he's you know, a real edge to him. And I think that's the beauty of him as a footballer. Similarly, Joey as well, that can play at 15. In fact, many people think that 15 is Joey's favourite position or best position. I think Crowley is someone that could adapt to 10, 12, 15 because he's he just he reads the game well and it does feel like all of a sudden that Healy's probably down the pecking order to to third there was you know question marks as to whether Carberry was going to be in or Healy and now all of a sudden you know, mentioned that some being gazumped earlier on it feels as though Crowley now all of a sudden is vying for that starting berth with um, with Joey um, and it'll be all about who's able to put two consistent perform two or three consistent performances together because whoever gets selected next okay if they go really well they get another run but if they don't go well in that next game then someone else comes in got catapulted in and then they have a run at it whoever is the man in possession and is able to put two or three quality performances together should ordinarily be the number 10 for the rest of the season provided their next few performances aren't substandard and it feels as though for me on consistency that Crowley possesses the the, the, the the greatest ability to do that on, on the small bit that I have seen of him this year. But the fact that he can play 15-2 is a spanner in the works and getting your best players on the park. Although, in the, in the same breath, Mike Haley will have something to say about that. So, I don't know. That's not my problem to worry about. But it's, it is Andy Farrell's, it is Graham Rowntree's, but it is a nice problem to have that now all of a sudden you've got two out-halves in your province that are competing for international honours. It means that their standards are higher than where they've been in previous years. Ross Byrne reminded everybody with that kick three minutes some time that he hasn't gone away. He's effectively been in the cold internationally since the end of the Six Nations in 2021. Gets the call to come into camp last Monday comes on, probably didn't expect that he was going to be part of the match day 23, even on the day on Saturday. Tricky enough kick in the circumstances, slots it over no problem whatsoever. Does he now come back into consideration for the World Cup or where is Ross Burnett in this um, out-half depth chart, if we're to put it that way? I think, first of all, an incredibly clutch kick. You know, I think, you know, tip your cap to him. Um, I thought it was, you know... um, the beauty, first and foremost, was he, he never thought it was there's never no conversation. I'll just nudge this to the corner. He, he, it wasn't a case of him not liking the look of it. Ross Byrne, in my eyes, and um, the best part of his game is um, his is his goal kicking. He is one of the guys you would put your house on, um, not just in Irish rugby, but I don't know. I can't think of too many more that you, you would feel huge confidence you look at his stats but there's a composure to his kicking there's a huge confidence to it that doesn't necessarily always resonate with the rest of his game but I think as a goal kicker he is absolutely outstanding I'm pleased to see him come through and have a moment like that you could see the love from his Leinster teammates knowing the struggles that have gone on you know previously he's been a bit unlucky with the Irish teams that he has been involved in Um, you know England before the World Cup there was another um 
very tough you know, day at the office. Um, you know, even from a provincial point of view, you know, he played in the semi-final against La Rochelle and things didn't go well. Um, okay, you know, he came on and, 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 you know, perhaps didn't deliver his best performance in the final. I, w- I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind that per se, but I guess w- what are you looking for in your 10? Um, are you someone that really takes the ball aggressively to the line and picks passes? Um, or are you looking for someone that has a very confident kicking game that will play the corners that, you know, is proficient in the passing game, but not to the same degree as other players. And I, I suppose that is the, that's the query. I think he's improved in that regard. I think he's takes the ball a bit more aggressively to the line, but not to the same degree as Johnny for sure. Um, and I just like the look of Crowley next after that, more so than Carberry. And and I think Ross is probably fourth in that regard. So it just depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for massive security um, and, a, and a super solid performer, which I think Ross is? But are you looking for a little bit more in, in the X factor that the likes of Crowley has? And, and maybe, you know, there'll be a, the odd mishap here or there, but there's there's definitely an ability to break games in his performance. Like there is in Joey. I think there's less confidence in that with Joey now because he hasn't had a chance to have a proper run at things. But it, it is there somewhere with Joey. Just need to see it again. Need to have it brought back out. But I, I I feel the more I do watch of Jack Crowley, the more confident I feel that he is a potential heir to the throne. Yeah, th- that race for number three seems particularly wide open, especially if you consider that the Irish coaching team clearly are very fond of Kieran Frawley as well. And Frawley will add that versatility and you could pick him and he can play multiple positions too. I mean, he's not out of contention at all to go to France next year. No, he's not. But I, I suppose if you are talking about versatility, yes, Crowley does play um, or uh, Frawley does play twelve, but um, and 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 fifteen. But you know, you are looking at the lights of Jimmy O'Brien now coming in. Can play in the wing in the centre and and at fullback. You can play Crowley at fullback if you have to. Um, all of a sudden now, again, the guy in possession. You know, Frawley perhaps didn't have his greatest game against the All Black selection. Um, and as a result, you know, others have been given their chance on on decent performances, um, and and Crowley really stood up to it. It wasn't; it was far from a perfect performance on on Saturday, by the way. You know, I thought it's one of his felt first his way into it touch. a little bit. I thought, like, yeah, the one of his first kicks to touch was so tentative. Yeah, mm. really tentative. Big slice. It was it was like something out of my kicking locker. Um, and uh, but yeah, he eased his way into it. You were willing over that first penalty for him. Um, and and I think he was you know very very proficient defended stoutly um you know unlucky gave away a penalty for not rolling away but not much he could do um but the rest of his game you know very very solid I think sometimes um you know he'll look and see Ross Byrne coming on and kicking the winning goal and getting the headlines and getting credit but I and which he which he should deserve to, to do but I do think that Crowley for a first outing against a top a top team I think it was a pretty good. Um, a pretty good performance with a bit to work on as well and will be much better for it. So I think in all of these cases, we're always thinking about what the ceiling looks like, who, what, what the capabilities are. And I think the one thing with Josh Van Fleer, to go back to him, is I don't think he ever, he gave himself no ceiling and that's why he's able to get to where he got to. And I think that's the important thing with, with these other players coming through, what they're capable of doing. And I just feel as though... Again, the greatest ceiling from a talent perspective looks as though 
Crowley now is in behind uh, Johnny. Australia will probably be kicking themselves. They didn't make more of the possession that they had, particularly in the first half. 62% of the ball ended up with 54% over the 80-plus minutes. It took nearly an hour to play that first half. Um, Tennis Tank has been in touch on YouTube. Can you ask Brian, how do we adapt to teams who play keep ball against us? It's something Australia did pretty effectively. Um, How do Ireland combat teams that go out to play like that, particularly with the World Cup in mind next year? Yeah, well, like obviously, everyone is looking for for um, an Achilles heel with Ireland. You know, you you could argue that maybe their kicking game, both chasing and receipt, hasn't been you know what you might expect it to be. That they could be challenged in the air. That you know certain teams are going into that chip space in you know because Ireland are coming off the line very aggressively. So is there some access to be had um, with with it? Um, I, I do think as though that a team that loves possession a bit like okay I'm very I'm, I'm I'm reticent to compare Ireland currently with Barcelona but you look at that tiki taka holding holding possession you know that's what they love and then all of a sudden there's one lapse in concentration or you know creation of space by that interplay all of a sudden they've got a chance but I think if you take that away from them if you become the possession team all of a sudden you take out their greatest skill their ability to be able to create chances and and the thing is it's about patience with chances it's if you get your shape right and you pick the right pass well you a chance of a line break but even if you don't pick the right pass you recycle well you look after things with your basics all of a sudden you create another opportunity in a phase or two phases time and that's the that's the real strength of this ireland team they don't go chasing after it every single time they're patient with with their their opportunities um and so if you take the ball away from them and they have to defend and you play miserly and you look after the ball yourself well from a rough perspective um well they're going to get frustrated and not going to be able to deliver their best performance the only thing i would say about ireland is hard to do that against ireland to hold possession because they're so bloody good at the rook and as soon as you don't put enough numbers in there Doris or, or Tyburn or Porter will be in pilfering ball from you. So you have to be so accurate at your rook, um, which I don't know if other teams have, have, have realised the attention that Ireland give to their rook. And I think that is a is a significant point of difference at this moment in time, that their their accuracy is so good defensively and in, and in attack. Bundiaki made a good impression from the bench. Even the try aside, he came in, he was very busy, got a good go-forward ball. Stuart McCloskey maybe had a quieter game than the South Africa game. I know you were talking about McCloskey with Gerrard last week, but I'm interested in what you thought of the Australia performance. He went through Foley at one point, but uh, what did you make of McCloskey last weekend? It was frustrating for him, wasn't it? Um, you really felt, if I'm honest, I thought it, it must have felt like a big missed opportunity um, because he just he just didn't get a stranglehold on the game. A couple of times he got you know, one or two balls to carry in, a bit inside shoulder, didn't carry with the same venom that he ordinarily would. Um, just, you know, there just there wasn't quite the same cohesion with Crowley and uh, it would have been a new relationship that they that would have worked together you know, last week. So it felt, and I mentioned beforehand that all of a sudden that, that now um, McCluskey and, and Bundy were, were vying for the same um, position in that World Cup squad. Um, and if McCluskey had put down a big marker, that was going to be a huge threat to Bundy. But then on the flip to that, Bundy coming in, you know, besides scoring the try, but also I watched him in, in pushing ring rows out of the way for that score. I was like, oh no, I'm the guy to carry from four metres out and I'm not going to be stopped here. And McCluskey would have been that guy too, but he wasn't on the field and Bundy came on, did a good job, good communication, 
yeah, good basics. And it did feel that it was a significant um, contrast between a guy that had a quiet game and a guy that had been um, bullying to get on and then delivered um, when it went, when it was asked of him. So it feels very much advantage to Bundy again. If you were Australia captain last Saturday, would you have been frustrated four neck roll penalties which were given away during the game? They got down to 13 men for their own, basically through their own cause. Last night, we'd Andy Dunn here saying they need to learn from this. They had yellow cards and gave away loads of penalties during the rugby championship as well. Would you be frustrated that in so many occasions when they were actually in decent positions, Australia shot themselves in the foot with their indiscipline at the weekend? Um, yeah, you would be frustrated, I think. It's difficult because I think that's a, a largely to do with Ireland's really good body positions in rooks as well. That's not just an Australian issue. I think it's you know credit to Ireland because the only way to move those players, they were latched on, and the only position that you can get immediate access to pull away a player away from rook is with their head. You can't get that access with you know locking arms or or you know pivoting. You know, you, obviously the crocodile roll is being outlawed. So ha- if you lose the shoulder, that's the only way to actually contort a body to get it away so that's not just the shortcomings of australia i think that huge credit and kudos has to be given to ireland to get into those strong body positions to make it more difficult to move just uh, uh, one of the frustrations about australia obviously is going down to to um to 13 men but i must say and i don't know if you know i think josh van der Fleer went across to peter omani when when the penalty was given at that time and had a word about them going that if they take him scrum there and then they obviously kicked for a line out, but they could have had ten minutes exactly with thirteen men. And I think you've got to cap- capitalize on those situations to wait for three or four minutes into the second half um, to actually for them to go down, for there to be a scrum, and for them to go down to to thirteen men. So I think those things are important retrospectively that the message comes on from, even if you're not clear of thought as a captain or as a leader, it felt as though Josh knew what was going to happen. Um, and then, you know, yeah, you might forego 30 or 40 metres up the field, but you've got an additional player for 10 minutes. You've got to take advantage of what it seems like a strange rule. That's not our problem. If they've infringed, they've lost their player, and then they lose their hooker to a pen, to a, to a yellow card well, let's take advantage of it as much as you possibly can. So there's another thing to learn from if it does happen over the course of, um, of, of you know, the, the next year, particularly at World Cup, that you, you know your rules and, and, and you use them to your effect. Yeah, got to turn the screw. It is a bit like a very different selection the week before against Fiji, where I think the frustration was there for Andy Farrell when he thought Ireland really need to kick on. And they didn't at a point when they had an extra man in that game too. Like We talk about all these different things that have to be worked on there. The small percentiles that could make a big difference here. Yeah, well, you know, there are the, the differences in winning a quarterfinal against New Zealand or France. And that's the reality of it. Like, it, it's funny. Every time you get excited and giddy about it, you realise the magnitude of that one game. Provided you get there as well. You've got to, let's... You know, pay a, a bit of respect to Scotland as well. Yes, we are number one in the world, but they will make life very, very difficult in in the World Cup. You would hope on current form that we'll have enough to get that job done. Then you're qualifying, provided you you know, well you'll you'll either win or lose to South Africa, and that'll have you first or second seed. You would imagine. So if you if you put it in, into context that way, and then you your reward is France or New Zealand, you're going to have to play at close to 100% to beat France at home or New Zealand in a World Cup. 
And um, and so all of those little factors are all going to be huge in the outcome in, in that 80-minute World Cup quarterfinal, provided we get there for Scotland online, in case you're listening. Yeah, I do like how that caveat has to come out every time. Do you think the world yeah. rankings are reflective of where teams are? Because I mentioned at the outset, you know, France got their win against Japan at the weekend. Um, no Dupont, Entomac on the bench, an impressive win in its own right. They're unbeaten for the year. Uh, you look at Australia in ninth, seems like a bit of a false position based on what we've seen last weekend and their performance against France as well. Um, do you see Ireland being a little bit ahead of the pack at the moment or are the world rankings France actually reflective? Ireland, I think France or Ireland and Ireland are neck and neck. Um, if it was them, one and us two, I don't think you'd have too many complaints. But... I think on the basis, uh, the the thing is, um, the credit that this team has um, has derived from the the series win in in New Zealand during the summer is significant, and there's residuals from that. Whatever about the actual point factor on World Cup rankings, I think from a credibility point of view, people are like Josh van der Fleer, oh, you know. Okay, he was named. Ireland only finished second in the Six Nations. Yeah, but we won the series down in New Zealand. That is absolutely enormous. And there's a, like I said, there's a huge credibility that comes with that. And then you go and win your three home games in November as well. So I think, you know, I think we absolutely are deserving to be number one. You know, you wouldn't be devastated to be just a smidgen behind France because they're very, very strong at the moment. But World rankings won't count for anything going into a World Cup. Or New Zealand have a it will have will be a lot better uh, in a year's time with more time under Joe and um, and France. You know we don't know whether it'll get too much for them, um, and they'll proverbially shit the bed. We'll have to wait and see. Don't know if I can say that before the threshold, but I have. Well, look, New Zealand, um, the press were talking about even Schmidtball last weekend and they're talking about how things are transforming. They'll, they'll be disappointed, Brian, I would think, though, given um, 25-6 up at Twickenham on Saturday, they should have killed the game. Um, but maybe that's yeah, they the should've. kick up the ass that they needed, maybe. Yeah, and they're going to need a few of those. Like, I think, I think the big, there's a big reminder that they're not where this all-black team was previously and that, and that reputation now will not carry them through where... Um, where other sides now sense that they're <laughs> definitely not there's a soft underbelly but there's definitely um, the resolve that was always there, there is being tested and that they haven't been able to deliver in in where in years gone by they were always able to deliver um, so they're going to have to rebuild all that they're going to have to build the that huge respect that teams would have always had for years teams will always respect but now all of a sudden I don't think teams are afraid of the All Blacks and, and there's a, that's the differential um, where they'll, you know, they're not going to put them on the pedestal that they perhaps once did. And that was a real tool to them and a strength of theirs. And, and you take that away and look at what's come of the last year when, you know, when Japan pushed them close, where Argentina beat them, where we won a series down there, where um, other sides have picked them off too, where they've, you know, struggled in Scotland and um, and and obviously in England. Like, this is not the All Blacks that we've come to expect. But be wary of any wounded team, particularly one of the best in the world over the last hundred years. And World Rugby, Brian, they say they're now looking at the circumstances about 
Uh, those events that happened at the Aviva on Saturday, Nick White was allowed to return to the field eventually, despite clear signs he'd sustained a head injury in uh, two collisions during the game. He's been stood down since for 12 days. He's going to miss the final game of their tour against Wales this weekend. Um, he was unsteady on his feet. We were wondering how it could get to a point that he'd be back out for the second collision, which came with the boot of Josh van der Fleer after his earlier one with Mac Hansen. The explanation we got for, was that the independent matchday doctor and the Australian medical team were actually looking at the footage of the first incident with Hansen, which is why they missed the second one. Um, what was yeah. your take on what happened at the weekend? Yeah, the, your initial thought is he's not, he, he is unsteady. Um, and the referee said, I've saw him wobble. And so, you know, maybe a bit more ownership from the referee. I, I, it's funny because I, I listened to all of the coverage. I saw what Rob Carney said, what Matt Williams said. And to a point, Matt is correct in a couple of things. Um, you don't just have a, a wobble on the back of a head injury. You can have a dead leg and you can't put weight through it. And um, and so, you, you know, you, you, you move or, or you wobble to stand back on your other leg or take a big shot in your sternum and it knocks the stuffing out of you. It doesn't always have to be. That said, the pictures that we saw and the head collision put in unison with that speed, that wobble, led us to believe that that looks like a, a head injury. Um, and, you know, World Rugby, the case that if there's any uh, loss of balance, that, that there's no HIA activated, well, you know, the powers of B are saying they were looking at, this, at, the, at a different one. There's going to be ones that slip through the net. It's just when the magnitude of them is so serious and so visible for everyone, it, it just doesn't do the, the game a... Uh, the service it, it deserves because we have come on leaps and bounds but there's going to continue to be some of these that fall by the wayside but um, you know we it's frustrating because that's the talking point all of a sudden you know not the great you know the competitive game the physicality the niggle that we had amongst the two teams and um, the the okay imperfect rugby but yet still very enjoyable. All of that falls by the way. So all of a sudden, here we are talking about a HIA or a concussion that should have been dealt with um, better and, and differently. So, um, yeah, I guess it's it's frustrating the outcome. But yet, I, I'm I'm not going to throw Matt under the bus. He's right in saying that it, it's not only a head injury that 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 delivers uh, a, a wobble, a, a lack of balance like that. And you do have to put faith in the in the medics but yet even they can get it wrong as they've suggested they did because they looked at the wrong footage yeah and even um, to take it away from rugby I don't know if you saw the instant in the Iran game yesterday where the goalkeeper I only heard about it yeah, I well, heard about it you know he effectively it took about 7 or 8 minutes he came back on again he was visibly very shaky on his feet and eventually he went off so the protocols can always be looked at and can always be improved 100% like it's a, this is there's lots of moving parts this, and there's such nervousness around it now because of the cases being taken against different unions and against world rugby and and everyone's scared of their lives to do anything the reality is there's it's a very physical game there's going to be these concussive episodes but we just have to try and make sure that so very few of them fall between and fall fall between the net that we catch as many as we possibly can there will be the occasional one, hopefully not high end, not not to uh, to the detriment of the individual that will find a way to get back on the field because that's the the rugby playing animal that wants to get back out there and compete. 
Um, but the more we can reduce them and lessen them, the, the more safeguard the game will be. Well, rugby and off the ball with thanks to Vodafone, May sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Brian, pleasure as always. Thanks again. Thanks, Will. Good to chat. Talk to you. Brian O'Driscoll on Off the Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.